Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our cast from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week's cast includes Jen Rulon, Todd Adams, and Rick Clemens. And of course, you can learn all about them and our entire brilliant cast at EverydayMindfulnessShow.com. That's EverydayMindfulnessShow.com. We're going to get right into it. As often as the case, we're going to start today with a quote. The following quote is from Oliver Wendell Holmes. The quote is, Many people die with their music still in them. Why is this so? Too often it is because they are always getting ready to live. Before they know it, time runs out. I think for the music people, people don't want to put it out there until they think the music is either perfect or at a place where they're comfortable with the criticism. I know this is common also with even in my world of speaking and authors that people say, well, I don't, I don't want to put a book out there because I don't think it's ready yet. So they're always holding back that way and then they never get the book out. I know friends that they had a website designed and it took five years before they actually launched it. It was done like five years before, but they felt it wasn't perfect enough. So Todd, I'm going to start with you. How do you see that showing up in the lives of people where they're, they're dying with their music is still inside them? How do you see it showing up in all areas of life? Well, I, the first thing is it's all about fear. Fear of rejection, fear of not being enough, fear of not being loved, fear of screwing up. And my music is like one of my passions. One of the things that I want to do is speak in front of large groups. And I've been able to sp- speak in front of small groups and bigger groups with my wife. And I've kind of been fearful of doing it big groups with myself and not with my wife in front of me so or with me to kind of help support me so i've kind of been made myself very small and said well i'm not ready i'm not experienced enough and just in the last six months or so i've kind of kind of had this laissez-faire attitude like well it's sometimes good enough is good enough and the only way for me to get to step two is to get to step one so just in the last six months i've kind of created these opportunities for myself and accepted invitations that I otherwise would have kind of said, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Maybe it's maturity. Maybe it's because I'm in my mid forties, but I just kind of care less about whether or not something is perfect or not. So I've actually just kind of jumped in and I've had these speaking opportunities and they're not even close to perfect, but I'm willing to accept the imperfection and know that I will continue to grow and get bigger and get stronger and get more dynamic as a speaker. My guess is, Mike, you speak in front of large groups, I know, quite often. 
And you probably didn't start out that way. And I'm guessing you started out with small groups. Actually, I know that because I've interviewed you. And I just wonder, my guess is you didn't start out speaking to groups of thousands at a time, right? No, I started in classrooms. That That's where I started. What's interesting is you go along the journey, right? You start with a group. In my case, I started with a group of like 20, 25, uh, just to sort of get your feet in the fire. At the time, I didn't realize I was setting myself up to speak to you know, crowds of five, 6,000, like we've been able to, but you're just thinking, I just want to speak. And so where's the opportunity? And for me, the opportunity was small group settings. That was the opportunity. And so I was just happy to get to dive in there. What's interesting is they get bigger. You get excited and scared at the same time, right? That That's sort of the fun mm-hmm. of that. You get excited and scared. But once you do one, then it's like, that's not so bad. And then you do another. So I think that's the thing. Once you do it and you get to that place, you're like, all right, that was 5,000. What would 10,000 feel like, right? You start to challenge yourself to think, all right, I've done that. What's next? And it becomes more comfortable in that process. Well, and I think the important thing is, is that the fear doesn't go away. I remember Johnny Carson used to say that he gets nervous before every single show. So I think that there's this idea that we're supposed to have no more fear. And I actually think that fear is a good thing. It kind of keeps you sharp. It keeps you energized. If you're, if you weren't fearful or nervous, it would kind of, you'd lose your edge and you get a little more complacent. So I think a lot of people think that it's supposed to just go away. And I've kind of resigned myself to the faith that it's, it doesn't and it's not supposed to and to embrace it as opposed to resist it. You know, that's an interesting one because in th- I grew up in theater. And so there is this idea, you know, that some famous actors back in the day would get sick every night before they go on stage. And so you hear that, that that's natural to have that fear. And I always thought that, right, I'll have the fear and the fear will energize me on stage. It's interesting, though. There are days I still have that little bit of fear based on it's something new. But there's a lot of days that the fear's not there at all anymore. But mm. there's still an intense excitement, right, of, ooh, this, I like what's, what's in the room. I like what I'm seeing in the room. Or, and when I say ceiling, the scene, I mean the vibe, the energy, that this could be challenging, that this could be unique, that they're interactive, whatever it is, I, I'm excited about this. And there are days the fear is still there. And usually the fear is there when I'm starting to think that the people that are in the room, I think, could judge me. Maybe the fear is there when they're, if I was speaking in the military, it's the highest rank possible in the room. Maybe there's a little, oh man, could I impress them? And that judgment fear can show up versus mm-hmm. the excitement of talking. So I think I think part of it is where you are in the journey. Yeah, and, and, and the fear is the idea of not being enough. And yours transformed from fear to maybe excitement, but it's still an energy. And I think there's this idea that we're supposed to be completely calm whenever we're either playing music or writing a book or creating a website or speaking in front of groups. And you just kind of use whatever energy happens to show up in that moment. So I wonder if, if Jen or Rich have anything to add to that. I think this this is an interesting perspective to look at is what is that energy that's showing up? Because I think a lot of us don't do things. And then if, if quote unquote, the music does die with us, that fear is really easy to get past when we realize that you look fear in the face, and as soon as you look it in the face and you approach it, there's really nothing to fear because now you're actually confronting it. And I think if we can learn to confront these fears and allow ourselves to be curious more than fearful, then we can start to make the transition. Absolutely. And I think a good example there is I don't have the fear there, but that doesn't mean I don't have the fear over here in this other area of my life that maybe there's this thing that I want to try that I haven't tried. And I think that's where Rick, it's, it's, it's maybe we've overcome other fears, so they're gone in that medium. 
But that other that other medium we want to explore, that's that judgment, that fear of it happening and just going, well, what if I let go of the judgment? What if I just did this to see what it was like? And for me, the easiest example of that is this show. And that is that I thought, I'm, I don't care what the outcome is. I'm going to just do this podcast concept regardless of the outcome. And when I told myself, do it regardless of the outcome, it changed how I did the show. Like I, I did not, and I know this sounds weird or whatever, but I didn't do tons of prep and homework and research on interviewing what are the best questions. And maybe the show would be better if I did. But I told myself, just be present, be present, have fun with it, and let's go. And it allowed me to let go of how I was going to do it. If I thought I studied up a, a ton, uh, I think I would have been, okay, am I doing it right? Because I'm studying how to do it right, right? Versus being present in the moment. Now, what's interesting is now that I'm doing the show, I love reading interviews and listening to interviews and learning how to be stronger at it and more uh, more effective at it. But I didn't go in with that approach. I just went in with, let's just see where this goes. And it was fun and exciting and exploratory. You know, Mike, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's so many people out there that will say, hey, let's do the research. Let's figure this out. And they spend six, seven months to a year doing research and they don't get anything out there. And so the one thing, you know, the one quote that I heard, and I, I want to say I've said this before, but don't let perfection get in the way of good. I don't have, you know, I'm going to throw my book out there. And if I throw it out there, I get an editor, I review things, you know, I'll fix it. But if, if I see a mistake later on, oh, well, I'll go back in and change it. Like it's no big deal. And I think it's that fear of judgment. It's that fear of failure. You know, I don't care what other people think. I'm just going to go out and do it. And if, you know, and I think that's age has helped a lot with that attitude. <laughs> right. I think you, you said that earlier, Todd, about that maturity. And without a doubt, I think also a letting go of the competitive nature allows that to happen more naturally. I think when we're hyper competitive, it makes it very difficult to let go of judgment. Because hyper-competitive is, is about winning, which means you're, you're, somebody else is losing, which means this is very comparative. And there's judgment there. And there's evaluation there. And just being curious. And, you know, today's show is all about getting ready to get ready. You know, how do you prep? How do you put yourself in the right mindset? And, Jen, I think what you said, you know, is being willing to say out loud, I don't care what other people think, but here's the catch. You have to believe that statement. Because if I say I don't care what people think and then I start to do something and somebody says something that I feel is judging me, I'm going to shrink into a snail if I don't believe it or I'm going to fight back, right, if I don't believe that statement. And so it's getting that place of saying maybe instead of I'm doing this to be successful, I'm doing this to just discover, purely to discover and see where that takes me. Rick, what do you think? Well, I think there's a (laughs) – I think there's an interesting twist that as you were talking, it just crossed my mind is what does it mean to be ready? I mean, let's get real about this. Everybody's definition is going to be different. And what may be ready for me is completely different for you. But also is the ready that we're defining the actual thing that is going to hold us back the most because we put such a high standard to what's being ready. I remember when I was working on my book, and I, I just got to the place where I'm like, okay, I just, I want it out. I mean, I even got edits back from the editor and I'm like, I, which I think most of us would go through. It's like, okay, I just started checking the edits. And if I just checked the edits and I'm like, okay, that one got fixed. That one got fixed. That one got fixed. That one got fixed. And I had seen this so many times that the one thing 
I didn't do was really have somebody else besides the editor go through and look at the final draft. But for me, it was, I'm just ready for this to be out. And it was okay. After it came out, I found so many things wrong with the book. And it was sitting down to record the audiobook when I discovered all this stuff. And at first, I really beat myself up. And I thought, no, the real beautiful thing is, is I got the book out. Mm-hmm. And I actually made a really interesting joke out of it. It's like, okay, whoever has first editions, you got the really, really screwed up first edition. And it's going to be the one that will go down in history as the worst first edition ever because there's so many typos and stuff in it. <laughs> but I got it out. And I also learned a whole lot about myself in that moment of when I write my next one, or as I am writing my next one, I know all these new fail safes to go in, but I also know just keep going, just keep going, just get it out. That's the bottom line. Well, and I think you say something brilliant there, Rick, about the paradox of the title of today's show is Getting Ready to Get Ready. And I think the ironic part of that is there isn't a getting ready to get ready. It's just to do. The only get ready would be the mental right? To allow yourself to do with without fearing the, to be an exploratory without judgment, without, I have to have this benchmark instead of just do, right? Just do and see what happens. I mean, Jen, in your line of work, I mean, you're working in physical fitness and training people. This is one of the greatest areas where it's most obvious in people's lives, right? Because a person who goes, well, I can't do a marathon, so I'm not going to go get a trainer. Okay. But you didn't even try to run a quarter mile. Like, like you just, what would happen if you just ran a quarter mile? you could do that. You could run a hundred yards, right? But it's, it's that idea of just do the first thing, like do the hundred yards. And then the next day do 200 yards, right? It's that, that, but people just go, well, I'm not going to run three miles. Well, okay. What about, what about one thirtieth of that? I think a lot of people will start that way though, though they, they can't even fathom thinking about doing a marathon, but then I say, okay, give me 10,000 steps a day. Start walking. And then they start walking and then maybe they'll add a little bit of a run in there. Maybe they'll add a two minute run in that walk. And it's, it's amazing how once you start educating people on that, I don't expect you to run a marathon. I don't expect you to run an Ironman, but what I do expect you to do is get that body moving so you could have a better life later down on the road. As a coach, I, you know, educating people you know, fitness is important, but we all know that. And everybody knows that. But some people just think, oh, well, I'm not going to do a marathon, so I'm not going to exercise. And it's a really hard. And those are the people that I don't coach, honestly. Well, what's, yeah. what's interesting is, um, you know, the, the old quote, the journey of a thousand miles begin with a, sing- with a single step. And that's the baby step thing. But I want to bring up something else, which is the flip side. Is I run into a lot of people who tell me everything that they're going to do. So this is the opposite of, of what we're talking about, which is, People don't think they can. There's other people out there that will say, I am going to write a book or I am going to be a vegan someday or I'm going to run a marathon. And you know, and there's times when I'm like, I know that there's all talk and no action. So there's another, there's like that flip side is when I'm talking to a friend and they're telling me about all these plans that they're going to do, it's so much easier and safer to talk about it as opposed to just do it and then you know, the truth will seep out into your life with your friends and family and things that you're doing. But whenever anybody tells me about they're going to do something, I there's always this kind of doubting part of my brain like, okay, it's one thing to say you're going to do something. It's another thing to just do it. Like, show me you're doing it, you know? Well, I think that brings up a great question, Todd, is that if you, and I've been that person that's 
said I was going to do a million things and was getting one of them done. At the time, it wasn't always that it was keeping up with the Joneses. It was just, I was just excited with ideas, but didn't realize that I was losing integrity by saying I was going to do all those things and not do them. So I've been on that journey. I think an interesting thing for that person is to say, oh, uh, how's the first page going? You know, so, oh, I, I'm getting a book out. Oh, curious. Uh, how many chapters do you see? Is it going to have? Exactly. Or what's the title? Or so that they have to start thinking about what the book looks like, because maybe they'll sit down that day. What was the what was the first paragraph you wrote about for the book? What, what that be, you know, those kind of questions that we could all ask ourselves. Oh, I want to write a book. OK, what would be the what if I just sat down and wrote a, a paragraph right now? What would I write? Let's find out. And helping people just understand it is that same thing with the runner Jen was talking about. It is with the pen and the paper. What if I just wrote a paragraph today? What would that look like? And allowing people to do that. And then here's the key. And I think we that, Rick, you brought this up too, which is that first copy of the book, that 80% is good enough. That unless you're doing heart surgery, almost nobody's going to know the difference. Don't get me wrong. There are certain areas of life, 80% is not enough. But for the far majority... 80% is enough. Strategic coach Dan Sullivan really teaches that. 80% is good enough. And allowing to put out to the world at 80%. Well, and, and that's what's funny. is Our brain is hardwired to make us survive. It's not meant to make us happy. It's, it's meant to make us survive. And because there's no tigers chasing after us anymore, we instead decide to be fearful of things that really do not consist of our ability to survive. But because we have nothing else to worry about, I mean, I'm willing to guess that the people on this call and the people listening to this podcast all have food and warmth and shelter. And really, what is it that we're truly worrying about? And we kind of inflate these worries in our brain because that's the way our brain is hardwired. And I'm, I'm trying to go through a practice of how to kind of diffuse that a little bit. I wonder if you guys have any ideas. I mean, I am aware of it, but it's another thing to practice my awareness. Well, I, here's a funny thing. I saw an episode of Shark Tank recently. And a guy was on it that had made an item that had made millions previously. And they're all sitting there going, why are you on the show? And he goes, well, this new item I have, I'm really excited about that. They're like, no, no, you just made millions. Like what? And he's like, yeah. They're like, well, what happened to the sales of that? Well, the sales of Dove. And so what he was looking for was for the team to help him. And he, they looked at him and went, I have to tell you, you don't have enough desperation to make it on this new one. You had it with your first project. You're not showing it at all with this one. We're out. Even though they thought it was a great product. They're like, you don't have it. And I used to always say to people, desperation is the greatest motivation. I said it for years. I don't know that's correct. I think I could have been wrong. I think in for certain people, in certain, certain circumstances, desperation is a great motivation. It worked for me to launch and really build the Date Save Project. It worked. I was in tough situation financially, and so I just worked my butt off to get out of that. But the problem with that belief system is you always have to be in desperation mode then. It's not healthy. It's not healthy to live in that place. And I think that that's sort of what you're referencing, Tana, right? Is how do you dig deep or find the motivation without needing that desperation? Because you have shelter. You have all of this. Can you have contempt? Can you be content and strongly motivated at the same time? I think it's, I think it's like the, the heart of mindfulness, right? Yeah. And, and you have to be in alignment with what's when your inside matches your outside. I mean, you talked a little bit about keeping up with the Joneses and eventually, you know, maybe you do keep up with the Joneses and then what's your next motivation going to be? And a lot of times we're posturing as human beings, we tend to posture and try to compete. You know, we talked a little bit about how we're not as competitive now that we're in our mid middle age versus when we were in our twenties 
you know, Wayne Dyer, you know, hit a whole PBS special on, uh, you know, the morning of your life versus the afternoon of your life. And in the morning of your life, competition is how you kind of separate yourself. You know, when you're trying to court a mate, you're trying to be funnier or better looking or bigger muscles. And then you get into your middle age, you're like, wow, all those things I used to worry about really don't serve me that much anymore. And it's more about collaboration versus competition. And it's just we're kind of taught these things as younger people that we always have to be better than. And whole, and there's still, you know, 80-year-olds that still feel like they need to be better in. And there's like 12-year-olds right now that have plenty to teach me about how it's not about competition. So, you know, the, the lessons are abundant. You just got to know how to view it. I love the collaboration comment because I think for anyone listening and going, hey, I am scared to put something new out to the world. What if you collaborate it? What if you teamed up with somebody that you felt great working with? Would that help speed up the process? What if you're thinking, I want to write a book, but I just don't trust my voice enough? Or what if you wrote with someone else? You brought that up there, Todd, and I think that's a brilliant approach for people. Uh, Jen, you know this in working out. If people come into a workout plan as a team, like two people want to work out their best friends and they want to do a run together, you know if they both show up every day, it's going to be a success because they're going to push each other. And, and I don't mean in a competitive way, sometimes they might, but in a supportive way too, it makes such a huge difference. For sure. And over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've actually been reaching out to people and a lot of people they miss that accountability factor, you know, because we are so focused with online stuff that a lot of people don't have that person to go meet them at the pool at five o'clock, 5 a.m. or whatever, or go for a run at this time. And a lot of people miss that in the day and age just because, you know, we're all social, we're all online doing things and we, we tend to train on our own. But if you know that you're meeting somebody at 5 a.m., then you have to be there at 5 a.m. and keep that each other accountable. So yes, I see a huge improvement with that. Accountability partners are awesome, Jen, and I love the fact that you brought that up. One of my favorite Tony Robbins quotes is, success leaves clues. So for all of us who are trying to do whatever, be better or, or accomplish a goal, somebody else has probably already accomplished it. So what we need to do is figure out how to role model what's already been done. So that's the one thing. And the other thing I want to say, which is a kind of a good tool is I watched a YouTube clip one time and the guy said, I like to spend a third of a third of my time with somebody who I look up to and would like to mentor me. I spend a third of the time with peers, which would be like your accountability partner. And I spend a third of my time teaching somebody who, who wants the information that I have. And that's the balance that he tried to strike with himself because that keeps you hungry, it keeps you humble, it keeps you confident, and it keeps you accountable. It's just a wonderful success formula, and I'm not even close to perfecting it, but I try to keep that in mind. I think that's out of the book Tools of Titans. I think it's one of the interviews with Tim Ferriss. Uh, one of the people oh, in the interview really? says that. Because, I've, yeah, I read that too, and, and I think it's really powerful. Well, I think the other thing about the partner is, because I've got a friend, Sam Silverstein, who teaching accountability and leadership is, is what he does. And he says that his, his viewpoint is so brilliant because Sam says, look, accountability is not me getting a partner to hold me accountable. Accountability is I believe in so much my values and my beliefs and what I'm doing that I don't need anyone to hold me accountable. And so what the accountability partner becomes is a fun person to share with. It's not about holding me accountable. It's about it's fun, right? Like when I go to work out at the place I work out at, I love going in there because I have so much fun. Now, the reward is how much stronger I'm getting. But I love how much fun it is. 
to be with them versus if I go into my basement and work out alone, it's just not that much fun. And therefore I don't get the results because I enjoy the fun being there too. So the fun, I think that's an interesting thing for people to think about right now is, okay, if you're thinking of whatever this project is that you want to send out to the world, if you're thinking about it purely as this is a task, job, assignment, work, that might be part of the problem. How do you make this fun? How would I write a book so that it's fun? How would I work out so that it's fun? How would I start a new business and make it fun? I think that if you can do that, it, it, it now you want to do it because once you start to and you start to have fun, you want more of that and you want more of that. It's contagious. Well, in your workout example is a perfect one. I, I practice yoga a lot and I could just, I could so easily put on a YouTube clip of a yoga practice in my living room and practice yoga, but there's something that draws me to a yoga studio where I'm practicing with other people. And I think it's this, at least for me, this inherent need to be around other people. I, I'm not being held accountable by anybody in that practice, but yet I still, I still know that I'll have a better workout when I'm with other people versus with myself. Rick, what are ways that you see when you're coaching your clients at helping them take that step or you know release the music to the world? Well, I think the bottom line is I do three-step process with them. Clearly define what it is you want to do to release the music to the world. Now, that may mean, in some cases, I'm going to release my music of wanting to be an entrepreneur. It may mean I'm going to release myself to saying this relationship isn't working. It could mean I'm going to do something that completely scares the crap out of me, and that's what it is. But I get them to get really, really clear. But that only gets you part of the way. The next step is you ask yourself, why? Why is this important? What is it going to do for you that nothing else in the world will do for you? And when they can get to the why, so we're kind of playing in the Simon Sinek area of, you know, start with why. But when you couple what it is they clearly want and why they want it, then the tasks of getting it done become really easy. But then beyond it, I say it's a three-step approach, but I really like one, four, one more thing to put in it at the very end is once you know the task you're going to do to make that happen. So whatever it is to release your, you know, your music to the world, yourself to the world, step out of that, whatever it is you're stepping out of, make your big, bold move, is once you know what you want to do, why you want to do it, how you're going to do it, I ask my clients, and when you do that, what are you then going to experience? Because then you kind of come full circle. It's all the way around. You've gotten back to, gosh, this is what I'm really all about. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm not sure that many people ever ask themselves, what is it I'm going to get to experience? I'm going to take, you know, kind of Jen's work that she does. What is that person going to get to experience when they cross the finish line of that marathon? I love it. And that's a great note for us to say, how do we continue this in our own life? So what books are the three of you reading or other mediums? It could be YouTube, it could be TED Talks that that help you continue that discovery. Because I think what you just said there is so brilliant, right? It's the why. That is the Simon Sinek, right? Why am I doing this? So how am I going to experience that? So you just gave us a formula that was brilliant, Rick. What are way books that you're using or mediums you're using to keep that in the forefront of your life, of living in a way that allows me to share my music of the world and be exploratory and discover and take risk without that fear or less fear of that judgment? Well, you just brought up Tim Ferriss' new book, and it's the Titans one. I can't ever remember Tool, the right Yeah, title, Tools of Titans. Tools of Titans. But I love picking up books like that or actually I, I'm reading You Can Heal Your Life right now again for the umpteenth hundred time by Louise Hay. And, and just looking at 
my formula of what is it I clearly want? Why do I want it? How am I going to do it? And what am I going to achieve? Now, as I'm reading Titans, I'm asking, okay, what did each of these people do? What was it they clearly wanted? Why did they do it? What did they do to get there? And what did they get in the end? To me, it's just something that it, I can pick up pretty much any book, even some of the crazy novels that I read, and, and I can actually kind of lay that over. What What does this character really want? What are they trying to do? Why are they trying to do it? How are they getting it done? And in the end, what are they? That's how I, I know it's kind of my thing, but that's how I keep myself constantly looking forward to those those outcomes so that I never, I mean, I can honestly say, if I were to kill over after this interview, I would not have let the music die. Everything I got to do would have been done because I'm that comfortable in. I know I've done everything I've been put on this earth to do, even in this moment. Doesn't mean I'm not done. It's just I'm that comfortable in that feeling. And that's the ideal. That's great. Jen, for you, what what are you what books or what are your mediums you're using? I've brought this up before, but one of my ultimate favorite books is The Alchemist. Mm -hmm. and uh it it, it's a great i mean and i will grab that book before an iron man and just you know skim over it even i'll have to read the whole thing again and it's usually i'll get that out and then every quarter i actually do watch the youtube video of simon sinek of his why and the tedx talk so i will watch that and then i will actually do some youtube videos of gary vanderchuk and just some of his more popular interviews because I like to hear what other people talk about as well on, you know, with their businesses and their lives and how they look at themselves. You know, there was a great interview with him and John Legend and, you know, Gary's like, who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm a small town kid from Ohio who loves music. And I'm like, wow, that's how he sees himself. And I think that's pretty cool. So awesome. Todd? The, what I'm reading right now, there's a book called 15 Habits of Conscious Leadership by a guy named Jim Detmer, and it's actually written more in terms of organizational behavior. It works with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, but I've tried to kind of adapt it a little bit or understand it through a parenting perspective. So that's, it's called 15 Habits of Conscious Leadership. And then, you know, you, I just love YouTube clips. If you just put in motivational, whatever, bites into YouTube, you'll get a, you know, just a you know, literally millions of things. Les Brown is a guy who I don't know how active he is anymore, but he's just super emotional and engaging public speaker. Uh, that's one guy I've happened to come across quite a bit as of late. So Les Brown and Jim Detmer. Les Brown was the first speaker I ever watched via video in college, VHS tape. And that was the first experience I had with a high-level professional speaker that had been out there, you know, doing this, traveling the world. And yeah, it just blew my socks off. It's so powerful. So I want to thank each of you for an awesome episode. For anyone listening right now going, hey, who are these brilliant people? You've been listening to Jen Rulon, Todd Adams, and Rick Clements. You can find all of them at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Including that, you'll find the show notes of the books we just mentioned and highlights from the show all at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Until next time, May you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks.
We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.